Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hey, hey, hey. Hello, hello. Um, Thanks for tuning in from wherever and whenever you are listening. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, Today we have a uh, really important show on two fronts. Um, We are are actually kind of combining two probably very different things together um, into one show, but uh, part of that is because some things have happened this week that are very timely, and we have to talk about them, um, and we have to get uh, some word out. And the other things are artistic and important um, on another front. And we wanted to talk about that because um, a new film is coming out. It's a half hour long. It is by uh, Native American director Harrison Bahe. And um, it is a um, very moody, um, very um, well done cinematically, very well acted small film. Um, you're getting to hear about it before it even hits the film festivals, um, and so we're really excited about that. But both the film director and the film star will be joining us later in the program, and um, we're going to talk about their work and um, everything about that. But before we get to that, um, again, war has been declared in the state houses across America. Um, Republicans are hell-bent to be the most evil, awful people in terms of the transgender community. Um, uh, The transgender community is absolutely under attack by these people. And um, I wanted to give a special message out. Um, Now, there are quite a few things going on. So they're attacking on several fronts. They're attacking, obviously, in um, sports and wanting to keep transgender girls particularly out of sports. Um, they also, a group in Virginia is um, fighting against protections that transgender kids have to use locker rooms and to use bathrooms. And that, all of that is bad. That is wrong. It is trying to erase transgender kids. It is detrimental to them psychologically. Um, it is unjust. There's nothing right about it. It is unnecessary, um, period. But, not but. Um, the thing where you people, and I'm talking to Republican legislatures specifically, face-to-face, where you have crossed the line, is legislating against the rights of parents to take care of their transgender children. So I have a very special message for you people. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. You have no right to do that. People, parents are trying to save the lives of their kids. They're trying to give their kids the right to grow up and be fully healthy, mentally, emotionally stable individuals, and you are butting your heads into places they do not belong. So that is my word to you, and um, if your legislature continues, I personally am going to do everything in my power to take you down. You guys are assholes, and you are un-American, you are evil, and you will pay for this. 
Um, and that's all I have to say about that. With that, I'd like to welcome to the show my illustrious co-host, um, Brody Levesque. Hey, Brody. Hey, good afternoon to everybody listening around the world. Uh, today's been an interesting day. As we go on the air, the West Virginia State Senate passed House Bill 3293, which is yet another anti-transgender bill that would ban transgender girls and women from participating in sports at elementary, secondary, or collegiate level consistent with gender identity. Um, uh, the bill is now going to head back to the House uh, for its concurrence, and then they'll work together on the legislature. Uh, so it's just been a plethora, kind of a pile-on one after the other of these bills. Um, and, yeah, as you said, it's just gotten a little out of control. Okay. Um, all right. Also in the news today, which is kind of even more important in some regards and maybe not so important in other regards, the president uh, held a Rose Garden event today at the White House. And in that Rose Garden event, he laid out what he's going to be doing in terms of executive uh, orders and actions on gun reform and gun control. Um, with, the, with the president was the vice president, Kamala Harris, the attorney general of the United States, Merrick Garland. And in the audience uh, were survivors of some of the mass shootings and others who were very much a part of this process, including Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter, Jamie, uh, Jamie, I'm sorry, was a freshman at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School uh, in Florida. And, of course, she was lost in the February 14, 2018 Parkland shooting. Also in the audience was uh, our friend of the show uh, and the media manager for Quality Florida, uh, Brandon Wolf. I spoke to Brandon right after the event. Uh, Brandon told me uh, the following. He said that uh, on the way to the White House this morning, uh, I thought about the last five years, how hard it has been without my best friends, how painful it has been for our community, how harrowing it has been for our country. Today, the president injected hope into the dialogue once more. I'm honored to have been invited to what will begin a journey to a safer America and proud to be in the fight against gun violence with the Biden administration. Uh, also uh, making commentary uh, were the kids from Parkland who had founded March for Our Lives, uh, including uh, Emma Gonzalez, David Hogg, Cameron Gasby, and Ryan Deitch. Uh, they issued a statement on their own. Um, and so, I mean, at, at this point, uh, you know, the president, uh, you know, was insistent. He basically told the audience, and, and, I'll, and I will quote the president on this, um, he basically said they can do it right now, talking about Congress. They've offered plenty of thoughts and prayers, members of Congress, but they have passed not a single new federal law to reduce gun violence. Uh, and, and really, at the, at the end of it, it was the president's word of, you know, enough prayers, time for action, and he's calling on Congress for uh, gun reform and uh, gun reform legislation. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a, a rough go, uh, you know, on the Hill, but I think with the president taking the action he's taking today, uh, along with the backing of both the Justice Department, of course, uh, and the lobbyists against, um, you know, the, the plethora of nonsensical uh, gun advocacy groups, uh, you know, there stands a chance this go around. Um, 
fortunately, in many respects, in regards to uh, the NRA has been kind of sharply decreased in its influence. And in one case, the state of New York has bankrupted itself out and they don't hold as much political power as they used to. Then I think that, you know, President Biden uh, will take, you know, direct action to get things going that has been previously unavailable. You know, everybody screams about the Second Amendment, Rob, and, and I'm, I'm basically going to tell you what the president said. And this is President Biden. No mm-hmm. amendment to the Constitution is absolute. From the very beginning, you couldn't own any weapon you wanted. You know, we've got a long way to go. It always seems like we have a long way to go. But we're taking steps to confront not just the gun crisis, but actually a public health crisis. Nothing, nothing I'm about to recommend in any way impedes on the Second Amendment. There are phony arguments suggesting that these are Second Amendment rights at stake from what we're actually talking about, Biden said. So that's that's kind of a brief synopsis of the event today in the Rose Garden. And then, like I said, going on the air, yet another state house took a shot at transgender folk. Right, right. And then there was also another shooting in Texas, I believe, today. Yes, there was another shooting so, in Texas today. So, so timely. And, I mean, it's just about time. I mean, God bless Joe Biden. Um, you know, and obviously he wasn't empowered to do it before, but, you know, he's, um, this is the reaction that, it should have happened several presidents ago, and um, you know, good, good on him. Good, good that we are finally um, attempting to do something um, to curb that tide. So, um, well, with that, um, uh, she's waiting on deck, but uh, we we're bringing on our regular analyst and expert, Bryn Tannehill. Um, and she is the author of Everything You Want to Know About Being Trans That We're Afraid to Ask. Uh, she also has a new book coming out, um, but today we are bringing her on uh, for her commentary and her thoughts on all of the uh, the attack that is happening across the board um, against trans kids, their families, and the transgender community in general. Bryn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thank- Glad to be back on again. It is always a pleasure to have you. Um, so, Bryn, what... Um, what I don't even know where to start on this stuff. Uh, first of all, what are your commentary on particularly the um, these legislations that are digging into um, families and their personal decisions on the things that they're doing for their kids? Uh, what is your feedback, and um, you know what are the facts behind what's being discussed there? So. This is not a new thing. This is actually something that the religious right has been building towards since 2015 when they shifted their focus to transgender people after they lost marriage. And at the World Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference in 2016 in Amsterdam, I actually gave a presentation warning clinicians globally that the religious right was going to be targeting Uh, their ability to practice medicine with transgender people because their goal was to prevent uh, transgender people from receiving medical treatment. And starting in 2016, at the same time, we started to see the rise of parent groups uh, that were in bed with the religious right uh, begin uh, forging ties and begin putting out things, uh, creating fake research to indicate that trans was a contagion, And over time, 
uh, the religious right started uh, embedding people within these movements and getting writers to write phony books about it, like Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage and relentlessly promoting it on Fox uh, and working with um, Alliance Defending Freedom, Heritage, Family Policy Alliance, and then pushing these things into state houses. So this is actually the culmination of a solid five or six years worth of work by the religious right to prevent transgender people from receiving health care. And this is going to be absolutely devastating to trans youth, okay? For trans youth who are going through the wrong puberty and aren't able to stop it, this is like a horror movie. It right. feels as if you are Jeff Goldblum in the fly. You're transforming into something hideous and unnatural, and there's nothing you could do to stop it. And this results in intense gender dysphoria. And what's worse is because you don't stop the gender dysphoria, uh, the puberty in time, you end up with kids who are going to need much more extensive medical care later on to help address their gender dysphoria. Uh, But because they went through the wrong puberty, there's only so much you can do. And you end up with people who will suffer uh, extreme gender dysphoria through the rest of their lives uh, and will not have passing privilege. And this sounds elitist, but the truth of the matter is is that trans people who don't pass have worse psychological outcomes, whereas the evidence for trans youth who do receive timely treatment have psychological outcomes no different from their cisgender peers. And what this is, is this is condemning trans youth to a life of pain. And as mad as you are, Rob, Think about the parents of these kids who see their kids suffering. How mad are they? Oh, no, exactly. And that's where I come from is because being a father, it's like I know what whatever the thing is going on with your child, how you, you cannot sleep, you cannot breathe, you cannot do anything when your child is facing an issue. And to have someone come in and dictate to you, someone who is, got, first of all, their own um, screwed-up agenda uh, behind it. It's, it is absolutely maddening. I, you know, it's, I'm furious. I'm absolutely furious. And, and I can't and imagine. Course- I've talked to these parents, and they, you know, it's like the, the things that they have had to go through to, in their journey to understand their child, to then have somebody come in and um, act like their decision-making is minimal, is obscene. So the other thing that listeners need to understand is that this goes against every major medical organization in the United States' recommendations. The American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychoanalytics Association, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, the Endocrine Society, uh, the and the list goes on and on and on. I could keep rattling them off, but the short version is is that this is not based in medical science. This is based purely out of a religious belief that transgender people shouldn't exist. It, it is wrong to be transgender, um, and that the excuses offered of, oh, they should have to wait to 18, does more harm than good. Um, that the claims of, well, this one medical organization called the American College of Pediatrics, no, that's an anti-LGBT hate group 
that mm-hmm. is religious-based that was formed from about 200 doctors who didn't want to let gay people adopt back in 2003 or 2004 and then opposed gay marriage. The objections to this are coming from the fringes. The people who actually know and treat transgender youth are vehemently opposed to this because they understand the harm it will do. And to put this in a way that perhaps listeners could understand if they have a kid, imagine your kid had something that was killing them slowly and painfully and you're watching them fade day by day and there is something that could be done for them, there's a medicine. But the religious right says, no, your kid can't have it. They should just need to suffer uh, because the medicine was derived, had some, uh, had been derived from fetal tissue cell lines from the 90s, right? Right. Uh, so, you know what, Brent, what, even, it's even worse than that because the, the um, I mean, it's a great analogy, but the, the analogy there, or the reality here is not only is that, that life-saving medicine being denied to them, but these parents are already fighting for their child and advocating for their child on all other fronts. And to have, it's just, it is just unconscionable that, that, um, that they're not being supported. Um, and I'm glad you brought up all the different associations because I was going to ask both you and Brody this. Where are these, these associations? Why are they not storming these state houses? I mean, it's like, are, are they being vocal enough on this issue? They've already issued the information on it, but it's like they should. And they've issued the statements. That, they've issued statements. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, this goes back to part of our problem as a democracy. Uh, we have gerrymandered states or we have states that are Republican held, and there is absolutely no way to take these states back from Republicans due to voter suppression and gerrymandering or just the fact that the state is so deep red, um, it doesn't matter if they're going against science and everything else. As long as they keep their base happy, that's all that matters. And as much as I hate to say it, what I have been telling parents for years and particularly now is have a bolt hole ready to go. It's time for you to leave. It's probably going to hurt financially but there's no guarantee that the courts are going to suspend this or that they're going to overturn it. And that in the end, the safety and well-being of your child is your primary concern as a parent. And inside of parent groups online, they're asking, what should we do? And our advice uh, as a parent of a trans teen who's heading off to an Ivy League school now um, is go somewhere that go to a state with good laws that protect trans youth mm-hmm. and go to a nice blue area, even if the cost of living is higher, this is what's best for your kid. They need to be in a place where they are legally protected and socially accepted. And a lot of these and, red states like Arkansas. But this is, this, is, this is a bad sign when you have protected, marginalized classes of people fleeing states. Right. This is this is not what you want to see in a democracy that supposedly holds up human rights. The last time we saw some sort of migration like this was the great migration of the of the teens, 20s, 30s and 40s, if you know what that is. 
I don't. What, what so, is that? Uh, when, trans- when transportation uh, became available, more widely available, and industrialization started opening up more factory jobs, uh, black Americans left the South, south in droves uh, and headed for larger cities. Uh, starting in World War One, when U.S. ramped up industry, and it continued through World War II uh, to escape the, the poverty and oppression of the South. Um, and usually when you have people migrating within the United States because of oppression, that's a sign of something gone horribly wrong because picking up mm-hmm. and moving uh, is expensive and it leaves your roots and it indicates that things are really, really bad, that you're kind of blindly fleeing to some place that you hope is better. Yeah, you know, and um, in this day and age, is it possible to, uh, for a, a trans family to conduct um, their, their therapy via remote? In other words, could a doctor in New York work with a teen family in Ar- or in Arkansas and, you know, order medicine over, uh, you know, through the mail, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, or is, so this, this gets weird because then you're starting to, well, if you're practicing medicine by phone and it's illegal in one state and legal in another, um, do you follow, follow those laws? So could we start seeing Arkansas attempting to shut down trans health care elsewhere by prosecuting doctors in New York or California? Uh, did, did do it uh, by email or do it electronically? Possibly. Uh, the intent of the law is certainly there in that it makes it a crime to even recommend treatment with someone out of state if you're a doctor in Arkansas or a therapist in Arkansas. So the goal is to cut off any access to treatment for those living in Arkansas presently. And whether or not they can pull off a Dred Scott two kind of decision by prosecuting a doctor in New York who prescribes hormones to a kid living in Arkansas, we will see. Uh, but my gut feeling is, yes, they're absolutely going to try it because this is how they plan on banning abortion in the long run, which mm-hmm. is tearing down bodily autonomy and then using uh, and then going after doctors in states where it's still legal. That does feel like what some of this is, is that this is the, the, um, the first salvo in their bigger medical scheme of um, going after women's productive rights as well, which, you know, goes back to that, the, you know, the Nazi saying about, you know, if you don't stand up for the trans teens um, because you're not trans, then, you know, the next one are the women. And if you're not going to stand up because you're a woman, you know, eventually they're going to come for you. Eventually they're going to be, you know, oppressing everybody on every level. Um, and this is this is horrible. This is this is absolutely horrible. Um, what are the gay so, inks, you know, the HRC and all those people? What are they doing about this? So I actually got a press noise. release. Go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. they are. Well, I got a press release today from the Human Rights Campaign on that very question. Uh, they're calling it the state of hate. Uh, they sent out um, basically 
a memorandum to reporters, editorial boards, columnists, and other interested parties, and they, they walk through at a glance what the bills are. They're recommending, you know, these are the type of things that need to be in the response. They're pushing hard uh, to have private companies, businesses, and advocacy and athlete groups um, do the shove back. Uh, for example, organizations like the NCAA, uh, Major League Baseball, the National Football League. In other words, get professional sports involved in fighting these issues. Uh, They're talking about pushing back with even things like the U.S. Olympic uh, Committee because a lot of the collegiate-level uh, transgender athletes would also be participatory in some of the Olympic Games that are going to be coming up. Um, today, the Washington Blades uh, White House guy, Chris Johnson, asked uh, Jen uh, Saki, the White House press secretary, what the administration uh, was planning on doing. Uh, and basically, the White House position is they're going to let the Justice Department deal with this. I should note that the current attorney general, uh, Judge Merrick Garland, uh, is a strong proponent of civil rights. And earlier last week, uh, one of the deputy attorney generals came down hard and said Bostock v. Uh, Georgia will be the guide for all federal agencies uh, in terms of how you know, trans people are going to be looked at, particularly students, taking a direct aim at the policies under the Trump administration, you know, in the education department. The question that is unanswered in this particular sense, and we, I haven't been able to uh, make inquiries yet with either the Justice Department uh, or uh, anybody else for that matter, because this was all happening as I got this memo literally as we were coming on the air, um, and my question is going to be if the application is going to be Bostock and you're going to be saying what the Deputy Attorney General was saying in terms of LGBTQ students have these rights and protections, you know, it naturally would make a sense to convey those rights over because most of those kids are in school. They're also athletes. So would that not be applicable? So this is going to be a kind of a long, drawn-out, uh, messy fight. Uh, particularly given the structure uh, of the lower court system. When it gets to the high courts, anybody's guess, that's co- probably going to be five, six years out. But in the meantime, it's how do these circuit courts address it? Unfortunately, a great deal of this legislation that's being passed uh, is happening right in some very conservative circuit courts. So we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, basic judgments being levied against trans athletes and their parents by these circuit courts. And again, and Rob, you made your point quite clear, and it, it, it needs to be made clear. This actions that are going on right now is this generation's Roe v. Wade. The Christian right is taking a page out of the playbook that they've been using against Roe v. Wade for years and years and years, chipping away at it. And now the next boogeyman in the process for them is trans rights. And they're going to be treating that the same way they did Roe v. Wade. This is the Roe v. Wade moment for this generation. And unfortunately, if people don't take the time to, you know, be proactive about the messaging and stand by our trans brothers and sisters, this is going to become extremely problematic. At the end of the day, as Bren pointed out, we're also up against the fact that the Republicans have completely, you know, entrenched their power. So you have a political minority that holds the power and that can be dangerous 
So on that, I'll turn it back to Bren or Rob or whoever wants to go. Go. Well, well we're we're actually so, um, we've got part two of the show coming up. So Bren, I want to turn it over to you for final words on your and your thoughts on this. Um, um, so go for it. So I want to give this as a warning to everyone. This isn't just about trans youth. This is about bodily autonomy. This is about making a next step towards uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. If trans people don't have bodily autonomy, neither do women. This is about taking autonomy away from trans people. They're trying to expand in North Carolina to prevent uh, people under the age of 21 from receiving care. And we can see we've, they've made it a... Uh, and the next goal is to make it 25. And this is an assault on lesbians and gays as well. If you can target transgender people with laws, you can target gay people as well. They want to overturn Romer v. Evans back from 1996. So this is, this is for all the marbles. This is the camel's nose under the tent. This is the slippery slope. So while people might think, oh, this is just trans youth, in this state, no. Because of the case law this is going to establish, this has national implications that affect everyone. Agreed. And, and, and we need to fight it. We need to fight it um, now. We need to fight it hard. Um, you know, I, I'm really calling on all of our organizations you know, they, they really need to move the bar up on this, you know, have a national summit, pull everybody together. We're all united on Zoom now. It's not even like people have to fly somewhere. Um, but they need all the minds, all, all the systems, everything going um, to stop this. This is unconscionable. Um, you know, and I know everybody throws Nazi Germany at, at, on, on the, uh, you know, at, at, at the whim of anything they don't like politically, but this is, you know, treading into that that lack of rights of um, totalitarianism, and um, you know, just because we've got a good guy at the top, we still need to fight this um, in the systems uh, throughout the country because this is where it's happening. Um, so, Brent, I want to thank you for coming on today. Obviously, we we just barely um, touched the surface on this. Um, when your new book comes out, we want to have you back, and hopefully with that we can um, go into further depth on that. And um, um, I can't wait wait to read what you've already written, so um, um, that that will be exciting. When when will that be out? So you should be able to download it starting April 11th or 12th uh, from Amazon, or you can pre-order it from my publisher at transgresspress.com. And the title? American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. And quite the theme of everything we've just been talking about. So, Bryn, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go and um, really, really appreciate your time today and everything you do. Thanks actually. for having me on. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. So um, that uh, we're going to switch gears now. Um, a move from the, the huge injustice of the world to uh, probably still injustices of the world, but being approached from a whole different level. And that is, um, I want to welcome to the show, uh, Director Harrison Bahi. And he is the, um, he's the founder of Navajo Joe Films. 
and the director-writer of a new film called Nobody's Boy. Harrison, welcome to the show. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure. So, um, Harrison, give us a little bit of background on Navajo Joe Films. Well, uh, Navajo Joe Films, uh, it was a little little high school company that I made back in 2007 because uh, I had just started a YouTube channel and I knew I just wanted to make short films. Uh, so that sort of sprung up from there. And, and the name actually comes from uh, the titular movie Navajo, a huge fan of Ennio Morricone's score. So considering I am Navajo, it kind of made sense. It was still kind of cool, I guess you could say. Uh, but yeah, we've been making... A- since 2007, and of course, culminating with uh, our longest film, which we'll be talking about today, Nobody's Boy. And Nobody's Boy is, is a, I think it's 33 minutes. It is so beautifully shot. I mean, the cinematography in it is extremely well done. The acting is actually is exquisite. Um, you know, what, what was your impetus behind um, um, writing this particular film? Well, uh, I suppose I, I've actually had this project in in the works for about seven years now, uh, and it all started with um, a story that began with a, a friendship of mine. Uh, it was actually a friendship I had with someone who was very similar to the character of Oscar, and with all the stuff that we went through, because uh, we started out as character does as with the older character, whose name is Mark in the film. And then from that, a friendship sort of sprung out of that. And I figured, you know, there's a story here somewhere. And the real-life story wasn't as dramatic, uh, of course. Uh, so, but a, a lot of that story in the film stemmed from my, a real-life friendship with a character similar to Oscar. Uh, excellent. Now, Oscar in the film is um, a young man. Uh, he... Um, is a um, escort, um, and it it kind of he also seems to be um, pretty heavily alcoholic. Um, can you give us some insights into his character and and what um, what he stands for? Absolutely. Uh, the I decided to make Oscar Oscar's character an alcoholic because, well, you know the story went. You know, it it evolved over years that I was developing it, and at the, uh, on, on the last iteration of this project, about three four years ago, uh, my sister's uh, alcohol, alcoholism actually kind of in, uh, inspired me to kind of bring that into this story, uh, because I've I've never really experienced anyone who um, was. A, a drug addict, because initially Oscar was going to be uh, addicted to heroin, but I couldn't really draw anything from that because I, I personally haven't really experienced anyone who suffers from that terrible drug. Uh, but my sister, who was going through her own kind of problems dealing with alcoholism, uh, and you know, in, in me bearing witness to that, uh, sort of inspired me to make this character now an an an, an alcoholic. Um, and it was sort of like a weird uh, mix of uh, fantasy and reality where I was kind of dealing with uh, my sister's addiction in, 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 my own, in my own way. And, and in a lot of ways, 
it, it still lives today. Unfortunately, she is she is four years sober, so there there there's still hope for that character in that sense in in the end scene. Uh, but the alcoholism came from my sister's own alcoholism and my personal views on the matter and how we dealt with it as a family, and from there. And now Oscar, though Oscar for me is a very um, broken character, and I, I've always been fascinated with with broken people, especially when it comes to my to my own filmography. Um, but most importantly, uh, how those broken people can fix themselves. Uh, it's just with my films, though, they sort of have to really, truly break themselves before they can actually start putting themselves together, which at this, which for nobody's boy, Oscar's character definitely goes through that journey of becoming absolutely just heartbroken and physically broken uh, to the point that it's time for him to heal towards the end. Right. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and with that, you, you, you cast uh, Daniel Estrada as, as Oscar. Um, Daniel carries the film, obviously. I mean, it is the looks in his eyes, the pain, the, you know, it's like he, and, and obviously on film, you know, there's no, there's no shielding. I mean, it's like the camera is right in his face all the time. Um, so he, you know, he has to be completely authentic. Um, how did you find Daniel and get him into the project? And what was the process with you and Daniel of, of creating Oscar? Well, uh, the process began only, um, a few months before we actually started shooting, you know, we had a lot of meetings about the character, but, uh, me actually meeting Daniel and, and actually started as a, uh, a model photographer sort of relationship because not only am I a filmmaker, but I'm also a photographer and Daniel was one of many models that I photographed and we actually collaborated multiple times on multiple photo shoots. And we sort of had that really nice working repertoire between photographer and model. And I would always notice that, you know, he would always give me these really awesome looks like he can totally pull off, um, you know, a sexy model, but also kind of, like Oscar, that kind of underlying human emotion of brokenness and sadness. Right. So right. that was always in the back of my mind. And, you know, flash forward a couple years, two, three years, and, um, you know, the time came for, for me to start getting back into filmmaking. And I figured, you know what? Now's the time for Nobody's Boy. And the first person that came to mind was uh, Daniel. <laughs> So we initially uh, started these meetings talking about the character, uh, breaking down who he was, you know, building um, a, a history for his character, why he was uh, where he was at the point in his life. Um, and initially there were a lot of um, stuff. There's actually a lot of stuff that was cut from the – initially this was written as a full-on 90-page feature-length uh, film but uh, because obviously we didn't really have the funds nor funds to really take on such a huge endeavor, we decided to cut out a lot of the fat and make it into a short film, and which is obviously what you have seen, what the viewers and listeners will be seeing pretty soon. Uh, but yeah, it was a pretty organic process just developing the character because I've been with this character for seven years, so it was very easy for me to convey what I wanted out of him and you know just 
very specific looks and emotions and um, inspirations. Uh, and we and we looked at a lot of um, movies that I've seen just as a reference point as to, you know, like uh, th- this character is a mix of of, the, of these film characters from here and here, and we sort of created our own special, unique version of of that, and that became Oscar. Yeah, no, it's incredibly uh, poignant performance um, on on Daniel's part. Now, the character of Mark and the actor who played him, uh, that was also a very um, well-drawn character in the film. I mean, he brought a lot of um, really authentic vulnerability um, to kind of a closeted older gay man. Um, um, Tell us about that character and and the actor um, who portrayed him. Yeah, that character um, was was initially it was basically me in the script, but of course, through time and of course over the seven years where it evolved, it, it turned into a whole different character. And and in fact, I think of we we shot for thirteen days over about four to five months, and uh, that night of shooting was actually the most fun because it, it was because it, most of the time it's just Daniel in. Uh, in one location, uh, doing his thing, you know, the scenes with the, the, the homeless person, uh, it wasn't really scripted. It was, that was all improv. So the, uh, so the character that, uh, actor John Dixon plays Mark, uh, that was actually the first time we were at, it was, we were able to feel like a, like a film shoot where we could, uh, rehearse the dialogue, break down lines, remove lines, change lines, um, and it was that was the most fun because it was just more it was more organic and we were able to really try to find our characters more and I, I and I think Daniel liked it very much too because he was actually playing to someone than just himself in in, in an alleyway in downtown Phoenix uh, right. but that, that that was my absolute favorite uh, uh, part of the shoot was shooting the scenes with um, with John and Dan um, but his character you know. Uh, I absolutely love John. John actually went above and beyond with his character, considering that this is, I, I, I want to say it was technically his first, like, like legitimate acting role. Uh, aside from that, he always was a part of the smaller film productions here in Phoenix with his own little company. But this was like, I want to say this was his first foray into drama. So he really took advantage of that and built a, a, a storied history with the character, you know, kind of like, as most actors do, built a rich history for his character to draw from to drive his performance for the current scene. Uh, And in fact, it was um, John's suggestion that we bring in the line, what does the tattoo mean on on, uh, Oscar's chest? Which, from what Danny has told me, doesn't really particularly have any meaning. It's just a tattoo (laughs) of of a guy on his chest. But at John's observation, gave much more meaning to that chest by having that uh, tattoo be uh, Oscar's father, which, of course, it it sort of paints a picture of Oscar uh, without actually telling you the full story. It kind of just hints at his history as to, you know, perhaps the loss of his father is what really kind of threw him down this path. So I thought that was absolutely a fascinating approach by John to really bring something that even I couldn't bring as a director. You know, that's what I love about, about actors who work like that, you know, or just actors in general, uh, communicating with them and, and conveying your thoughts and then them bringing a whole different 
how would you say, level to the story is fascinating. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, that, that, that was cool. And that, that segment did give you a lot about Oscar. I mean, the, the fact that he had lost his father, his father meant so much that he had a tattoo of him, that he didn't want to talk about it, you know, that there was like this whole, you know, just whole subtext around it. Um, also, the um, there is a point where um, they embrace when Marco's kind of like, well, what what do we do now? He's in this awkward um, place, and their very first connection, the kind of relief gasp that Marco lets out, is so authentic, and that too just told a whole lot behind it. I mean, if somebody who had been so withdrawn from contact of, you know, his, his, the people he desires and to finally have somebody in his arms that, that meets that. And just that, just that quick gasp just says so much. It was so real, so authentic. It was really um, a beautiful poignant moment. Um, Truly excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, thank Um, you. That was a really awesome scene to shoot too. Yeah. So, so Harris, I want to ask you also, um, just you know, in terms of your background, um, you, your, um, your tribe, um, um, the Yavape people. Um, tell us about that Yavape Nation um, and your kind of effort to to document and um, um, solidify the culture and the history of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm part of the Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation. Everyone always messes it up, so it's okay. Yavapai. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's fine. I, I lived on the reservation uh, throughout my childhood, like you know, zero to 18 years old, and I moved out to to Phoenix uh, to attend film school uh, when I turned 18. Um, yeah, no, the Fort McDavid Nation, it's a very small nation, about four miles wide, eight miles long, has a population of about, I want to say, 900 people with about 500, 600 people living on the actual reservation. Um, I actually recently, well, about, I say recently, but it was actually two years ago now that I, ha- I started a job at the museum on the reservation, and... I thought I had a firm grasp on what the history was of my own reservation. It turns out I knew nothing. Uh, when I worked there, I started delving into the history and the books, and we have actually led a very intense history full of, uh, full of amazing victories and tragic losses. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the Native American people of the area were not treated incredibly well, and we have multiple uh, uh, massacres um, that occurred on on or near our land. Uh, But on top of that, you know, considering when we uh, had returned to our reservation after we were incarcerated on another reservation about 90 miles away from here, uh, we came back in 1903, and and ever since then we've sort of been kind of – we we built ourselves into the nation that we are. Um, One of the major victories that we had as a nation occurred in 1980 when the the state government wanted to build a dam at the confluence of two major rivers that were located on our reservation. Uh, 
That was actually introduced at the end of World War II, and we as a nation were not informed about it in that, until 1970. And... We marched on the Capitol in, in 1980 in a peaceful protest uh, because as far as the government was concerned, nobody was living on the reservation. However, there were hundreds of families living on the reservation, and they attempted to, to buy us out, but our, our leaders at the time constantly said, no, no, we will not sell our land, we will not sell our houses. They were thinking for the future, and... It ultimately, it culminated with um, the government backing off. The dam was not built, and, of course, we're still here to this day. And that's actually one of our most like, famous stories of victory on the, on the reservation. There's many others, but come to the museum, and I'll gladly tell you all about it, because that's what I do. I do museum tours as well. No, that's wonderful. What, um, is there an overlap between the um, – the Native American experience and the LGBTQ experience? What is the overlap there? Um, and is there, is there something that you want to put in film that, that tells that story? Yeah, you know, I've, I, throughout, throughout the years, I've, I've juggled with the concept of creating a LGBT-based Native American film, uh, but it's just I haven't quite got it to right where I want it to be. And it's not that it's just like a it's just more conceptual at this stage but you know being an openly gay man in uh you know on a reservation i guess it can't really count for me because you know fort mcdowell is so close to phoenix that it's not so so far away that it's considered you know tr a true isolated reservation you know i just went to school right. two miles away from where i lived in fountain hill uh, where i lived in fort mcdowell i attended a fountain hills high school which is literally a town right next to our to our little reservation so uh but that doesn't mean that uh, a lot of influence has occurred in my films as as an out uh, gay man obviously that's the case with nobody's boy um but uh cu culturally though uh especially working at the museum and, and um, reaching out to, to other fellow uh, Native creators who, who, are, who are also gay, uh, you know, we've sort of kind of uh, unintentionally formed a little coalition of just uh, people who have stories to tell, and we're sort of co in constant communication about wanting to develop these stories for an as-of-yet unnamed project. So <laughs> to, to be determined. Yeah. Well, uh, back to yeah. this project, where can people, where will they be able to see Nobody's Boy? All right. Well, Nobody's Boy will be, will be available April 23rd at 6 p.m. our time, Arizona time. I'm not quite sure how that goes. I'm not really good with this daylight savings time because we don't have to worry about that. But uh, it'll be available April 23rd, the evening of April 23rd, uh, on YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, there will be uh, a, a quote-unquote R-rated cut available on YouTube because, of course, we have to censor the film a little bit to be uploaded to YouTube. Uh, and there will be a uncensored version available on Vimeo. And you can just search for Navajo Joe Films. Excellent, excellent. And are you um, – are you gearing it up to hit the film festival? Yeah, you know, uh, 
I think I might. Brody's involvement has definitely sort of expanded my horizons. Well, not even with this project, but definitely just in my life in general. Uh, so uh, Brody has <laughs> yeah, Brody has definitely suggested the festival circuit, which I'm actually I, I'm like in a love hate relationship with the festival circuit, uh, just because it, that that goes into a whole other story of uh, how I view my films and more importantly why I make my films. Uh, but I think it would be pretty interesting. I think, you know, Brody says there there could be a good good potential for this film and I'm like, Hey, all right, I'm all for that, I suppose. <laughs> so I believe there is gonna be the potential for this to be uh submitted to certain festivals. Yeah, absolutely. Well it it is an excellent production, um very moving um, I, I hope people check it out and find it on Vimeo and um, on YouTube. Um, and you have you have like hundreds of other short films. Are they also available on uh, YouTube? Yes, those are readily available on YouTube. As long as YouTube doesn't delete any, because that's been happening a lot to to YouTubers. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Well. We we we'd love to see him um, and, and yeah and hope we get you on a more stable format for you that would be be excellent. So we're um, we're winding down on our time here, um, uh, Harrison. What have I not asked that uh, we should be asking and talking about? Oh man, uh, you know I really wish that my uh, that my that the main actor could be with us today. Uh, unfortunately, he's currently uh, working and won't be available until like well until in eight minutes. <laughs> so oh, uh, I really yeah I know that he definitely had a lot lot to say about this you know so uh, but I'm pretty sure that'll be covered extensively as well because along with the um, with the film, uh, the following weekend, sometime in, at the end of April, at least, we're we're actually planning to release a little kind of making of documentary, you know, complete with you know interviews with the cast and behind the scenes photos and videos of the making and you know basically a much more comprehensive look at uh, the, the the story, the characters, the the pre-production, the production, the post-production. Um, stuff like that. So uh, that'll be available on the same channel uh, about a week after it comes out. It kind of depends on when I finish editing it because we haven't started shooting it yet. So really kind of <laughs> push, pushing that off at the last, last minute. But that's just me. <laughs> well, that should, be, that should actually be incredibly fascinating. So, um, yeah, let us know when, when that's available. Brody, did you have anything you wanted to chime in with? Uh, just to our listeners, uh, in addition to Navajo Joe Films on YouTube, uh, Harrison is an extremely talented uh, male portraiture photographer, and you can find his work online on his Instagram account at Bahi Photography. Uh, and again, uh, you know, Harrison I've known for a minute, as they say. Uh, he's an incredibly uh-huh. talented photographer and an incredibly talented filmmaker. Um, and I think it's really important, uh, especially uh, for the LGBTQI plus community uh, that we really hold up and support, um, you know, our folks of uh, color and our minority folks like Harrison uh, and make sure that we amplify uh, and boost their signal. And I think that when you guys do have an opportunity to see this film, uh, you'll be touched by it. It is a film short, but I think it does convey 
a sense of a real truism in how the world really does work at times. Um, and with that, Harrison, congratulations uh, to you and Daniel both. Uh, folks, you can look forward to a full interview with Harrison and Daniel at the Los Angeles Blade in the coming week. And with that, I'll throw it back to Rob. Yeah. No. And, awesome. and Thanks, Brody. Love you, man. <laughs> it is important um, to support not only this film, but uh, other films like we had uh, the uh, film Juliet on um, last week. The, you know, these films tell the stories of LGBT individuals. Um, each story is different, um, but, you know, there are common things that happen throughout and, um, how we get justice in the world. You know, we were talking about the injustice at the beginning of the show, and one of the ways that we fight that is culturally um, letting people know who we are and who, who our individuals are and telling their story and putting their hearts out there so people can understand and relate. Um, so anyway, Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, congratulations on the film. Um, really, really excellent. Thank you for everything you're doing um, across the board. Um, it is really important, and um, you are bringing a really important uh, factor to our culture. Um, so really looking forward to more. I'm, I, in particular, am looking forward to your future work when you get it figured out about the um, real the Native American voice um, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a lot there that has not been told. And, um, you know, you would be the man to tell it, ultimately. Um, and I want to thank Brody for all his work. Um, you can also read Brody's work at the L.A. Blade. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief there. Um, so he masterminds the whole thing. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in every week. We definitely appreciate you. Please do tell your friends, have them subscribe. Um, you know, we want to grow the messaging, um, get the word out across the board. Uh, for next week, we will be back here again, and we will have a very, very exciting, wonderful, wonderful show. And as always, I have no idea what that will be, but I can tell you it will be something you will not want to miss. So for Brody and myself, I'm going to, to bid us adieu for this week, and we will see you again on the other side. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 